0: Americans, this is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day.
1: Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I am Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute.
0: And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoy today's show, please subscribe wherever quality podcasts are available.
1: I guess it is Mike Godwin, who is a senior fellow at R Street, the author of Splinters of Our Discontent, How to Fix Social Media and Democracy Without Breaking Them, and recently, I believe, elected as a trustee of the Internet Society. Is that? Did I get that correct, Mike? Yeah, you totally got that right. All right. All right. Well, well, welcome to the program.
2: Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: We want to talk about your, your book and about social media, which has been kind of been getting it from all sides recently, all sorts of different critiques, sometimes mutually incompatible. Social media platforms are suppressing speech. They're promoting extremism. They're a threat to democracy. Uh, threat to privacy, monopolistic, addictive, all sorts of stuff. So we want to talk about all that, but I thought it might be good to start with just a little bit about your background, how you got involved with uh, speech issues on the internet and all of that.
2: Sure. Well, I, it all started more than 30 years ago. I was, uh, even before I went to law school, and I went to law school from the middle 80s on completing in nineteen ninety. But before then, and also during my time in law school, I was a journalist, so I was very alert to free speech, free press issues. But I'd gone to law school. I wasn't sure that I was going to be a journalist anymore or what part, what area of law I was going to practice. Uh, at the same time, you know, law school is uh, typically demanding of people. And so what do you do when you're when you tire, you're tired of studying and want to let off steam? And what I did uh, back even in the 1980s was I would dial up bulletin board systems in my hometown, which is, uh, I think, where you are, Josiah, in Austin right now, I would dial up, you know, people and and talk to people who were not law students or lawyers or law professors. And one of the things that I realized when I was talking on these bulletin board systems, which are kind of a small-scale precursor for social media, was that free speech is going on here. Whatever is happening here, you know, however we classify it, it's clearly freedom of speech or maybe freedom of the press, but definitely... uh, First Amendment zone. And I I actually remember bringing this as a law student in the last semester or two of law school. I went to one of my professors and I said, you know, I want to write something, maybe a research paper about bulletin board systems and free speech and free press. And, and, And his answer was, oh, no, all that law is all settled there's nothing new to say on it. And uh, he basically, you know, poured me out of his office, you know, said, No, there's just nothing there to write about. And of course, as it turned out, uh, starting uh, very early in the 90s, and I was already working, I'd already gotten a job with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, because they at least agreed with me that there was definitely some speech and press uh, going on in the online world. We began to see these issues really heat up again uh, in the 1990s. And I spent most of my first decade as a lawyer from 1990 to 1999, working on uh, primarily on speech and press and privacy issues uh, increasingly related to the internet. I worked on uh, the leading uh, Supreme Court case on First Amendment on the internet, which is uh, Reno versus ACLU. So one of the re- impulses behind this uh, Book is that uh, you know in 1997 I had seen a whole lot of arguments about how free speech and freedom of expression were uh, dangerous on the internet, especially dangerous on the internet, and I, I it was uh, weird to see those arguments the first time around because. Um, Uh, The people making them didn't seem to realize that the arguments had also been made about radio, TV, comic books, rock and roll, you know, everything. They just weren't aware of the history. But the second thing was that when we won a very strong First Amendment protection for the Internet and for Internet-based communications in 1997, I thought, well, you know, now I can move on to something else because this free speech thing on the Internet is all settled, you know, nothing new to say. Uh, and then I'm ready. Uh, you know, I'm ready to do you know copyright or some international law stuff. I'm ready to do that. But amazingly, I just look away for a few years. I look back, and what do you know? All of these issues have resurfaced again, sometimes in slightly different form, but often in almost exactly the same form. And so uh, I ended up writing uh, my book, "The Splinters of Our Discontent," partly as it's kind of
1: title. Way. By the way,
2: that's the sp- the splinters of our discontent. The splinters of our discontent. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Right it's not quite shakespearean but it's uh, it's uh it's a, it's a shakespearean homage right yeah and uh,
2: so i wrote the book trying to really chart how these arguments recurred why they recurred and what we should do in response to them and i and i just stopped there because i know you want to quiz me about some of that
1: yeah so it is a very interesting book it addresses a, a lot of different Issues, which is good. So, yeah, you know, in the book, one of the things that you talk about is that the kind of discourse or conversation about free speech and the internet is bipolar. You describe it as being kind of bipolar. So, explain what you mean by that.
2: Well, I I, I call it bipolar partly because I wanted to say that there was a bipolar disorder, you know, <laughs> afflicting internet law, and and that struck me as, uh, you know, that's my kind of humor. It's kind of dad joke humor. Um, <laughs> But, of course, immediately I got some responses from people when I started publishing articles using that trope. They said, well, you know, you shouldn't be making fun of bipolar
1: disorder.
2: I know, right? And I just said, no, I'm not making fun of bipolar disorder. Uh, I'm making fun of the fact that the legal system tends to only be able to keep two things on its mind at the same time. So uh, what happens is, in the United States especially, the bipolar disorder typically is played out as speakers or press against the government. So You always ask, what does the First Amendment stop? The First Amendment limits government censorship. There are some narrow exceptions to that and so on. It's all government versus speakers. In Europe and in some other countries around the world that also consider themselves free societies and have some strong uh, free speech protections, the bipolar piece is typically companies against citizens. The idea is that the companies are sort of presumptively commercial and so aren't looking out for you as individual citizens. But either way, you know, people tend to frame uh, speech issues on the Internet as if they were bipolar, as if they were just two sides to the issue. Uh, and then really, uh, that was unsatisfying to me, but I couldn't figure out how to describe what was wrong with it until I ran across some articles by a friend of mine, law professor at Yale, Jack Balkin, who underscored that in today's world, where all of our speech... Uh, still has protections against government, and and we still have maybe some kinds of protections against corporations. But people don't realize that there are three sets of players involved. So it's really a triangle, not bipolar. And when we try to push the companies like Facebook or Google to censor speech, what we're really doing is uh, creating incentives that aren't properly aligned. So the companies, you know, don't want to be super regulated. They don't want to be forced to be policing their users. And the users don't want to be censored by the companies. But sometimes the government will use its ability to pressure the companies to silence speech or to invade privacy or do other things we don't like. And, and people lose track of that. So that was the first part of my book was exploring that triangle.
1: And I think that particularly in America, there is a tendency to conflate freedom of speech with the First Amendment. Right. You know, this is you certainly uh, see this rhetorically get used. And, you know, people will point out that, you know, the First Amendment obviously only applies against state action. Right. Right. Uh, Whereas I think that the, there is a broader concept of freedom of speech where you could imagine a society that did not have legal restrictions on speech, but because of social pressures or corporate restrictions or other things there could effectively be severe limits on what people could say and, and the topics that they could discuss and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, for, for me, you know, that's valuable too. I think you call it like an ecological approach to free speech is you want to make sure that all of the institutions, you know, both government and non- non-government uh, exist in a way that you can have a real flowering of you you can let a thousand a hundred flowers bloom as Chairman uh, as, 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 Mao. Yeah, um, yeah, I know.
2: I know we're all we're all up to speed on our little red book. That's right. Yeah, but uh, so I think that's right. So we so one thing that happens is people uh, and and I did too, by the way. Certainly before I became a lawyer and somewhat uh, even uh, afterwards too, tend to treat the F- First Amendment talk and freedom of speech talk as if they were the same without recognizing that, although there are a number of countries around the world that we consider uh, democratic and supportive of freedom of speech, it's not always First Amendment type protections. Sometimes it's protections in broader ways and sometimes in narrower ways. And one of the exciting things about having been able to do internet law uh, for nearly 30 years now is that you know the internet is an international medium; it's a transnational, cross borders medium, and so it, in order to keep up to speed with how public policy is developing for companies, big multinational companies like uh, Facebook and, and and Twitter and Google, I had to be aware of uh, global speech regimes and not just the one that's in the United
1: States. I think this is the speech issue is one where. Social media companies kind of get it from both sides. So on the one hand, a lot of people are upset at the idea that, you know, you go on Twitter or YouTube, uh, some of these other places, you can find, you know, people saying a lot of offensive or noxious stuff. Or stuff that's you know false, spreading fake news, uh, stories, conspiracy theories, uh, uh, things like that. So you have calls for the companies to tamp down on that. Uh, on the flip side, there are allegations that when companies do tamp down, they're doing it in kind of a inconsistent manner or a biased manner. You know, maybe there's like uh, political considerations that are involved or sometimes just a nonsensical manner, right? Um, You know, I I had a, a recent experience where I was posting to a Yahoo listserv group and my messages were blocked. It said because they contained offensive content, right? And I am pretty sure that By any definition, I I assume Yahoo's definition as well, there was nothing in these emails that were offensive. Somehow I think it probably, you know, something went screwy with the algorithm and it, you know, it blocked it, you know, the way a spam filter will sometimes catch a, a regular email or something. But there wasn't really anything I could do about it, you know. So I mean that, that that's another problem that people have frustrations is that if they do get caught up in the system, you know, there doesn't seem to be much of a, a recourse. So these are obviously big weighty problems. I don't know if you want to advise <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey about how they could see their way through it. But what is your general perspective on how that should be managed?
2: So, my first of all, my feeling is that if Zucker or Jack reach out to me, I will make time on my calendar.
1: Yeah, right, right, yeah. You know,
2: for them. I, I you know, I just, and it'll be pro bono. I'll just talk to them. Of course, and course. try to help them as, as much as possible. Yeah. But I think, you know, Zuckerberg and and Dorsey, you know, uh, Sundar Pichai at Google and everybody, and, and Tim Cook at Apple, I mean, all the people who are in, fr- in front of, you know, leading these tech companies recognize that they are, you know, facing a bunch of contradictions demands. And part of it is that the flowering of uh, the internet as we now have it, and I think most people think the internet is a net benefit for those of us who have it, has been based on not creating uh, too much liability for the companies that provide us channels to the internet. Just as we don't make the phone company police what we say on the phone, we don't let the serv- you know, the service providers, we, we, we do let the service providers make some choices about what services they offer. People like Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey, they are free to set policies on their system about what to include and what to exclude. Uh, and the reason we do that is we don't want any of the social media services to just never, ever censor anyone because, you know, it would be put us in the situation of having effectively to drink out of the sewer. You know, I mean, you, you should have some baseline. You certainly can have someone decide as a baseline what kind of health of conversations or health of information exchange that you have. And different service, different companies provide different services. So it's not all social media, uh, but but you want to free the companies to make some choices that benefit users Uh, And in order to do that, you have to protect the companies uh, to some extent. But at the same time, the companies knew early on, and and, and Section 230, which is the main statute uh, protecting most content on these platforms, plus the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which relates to copyright specifically, these statutes uh, provide a lot of basic protection. But the companies knew that if they were really heavy-handed, in censoring speech on Twitter or Facebook, the natural response from policymakers and from the general public and from, so from the other two sides, other two corners of the triangle would be, why did you censor this stuff and not that stuff? Why this and not that? Why did you not censor Alec Jones's uh, tweets for so long, but you censored all my tweets where I criticized Alex Jones by quoting his tweets? <laughs> right. You know, uh, why did why me and not him, right? You know, and, and the answer turns out to be uh, complicated because the companies didn't want to raise the expectation that this was going to be like the New York Times or USA Today. They didn't want to raise that expectation. So they tended to be sparing about how to exercise their, their rights under the legal protections that they have. But that said, once uh, human beings intervene on content, even a little bit, they're going to be inconsistent. They're going to give rise to more expectations. And one of the things I've pointed out again and again, both in this book and elsewhere, is that when this happens, you get three reactions guaranteed, 100% guaranteed every time, which is that whenever the platform intervenes on content, there'll be one set of people who say, you censor too much. Another set of people who say you didn't censor enough. And a third set of people who will say you censor the wrong stuff. And the reaction uh, almost always will be, you should censor more. So the, you're, you're just not doing it right, Google, Facebook. We ha- we know you have all these billions of dollars. If you really wanted to censor things just right, you would spend more money and do it just right. And that turns out to underestimate how difficult these calls can be and how inconsistent human interventions are just necessarily going to be.
0: I've got a question I guess, about that and about Section 230. I'm no expert on Section 230, but is there room to, I don't want to say meet in the middle and sort of compromise necessarily, but is there a way to tighten up Section 230 that would give social media companies more guidance that would require more transparency on what their decision-making is, maybe provide some type of more transparent appeals process? Is that an area that Maybe there's actual justification for some reform for something like that?
2: Well, so I, I really, there are really two answers to this question. So I'll give you the 230-specific answer, which is that there probably is a solution that would satisfy some modification of Section 230 that would satisfy some people, but it would not make this debate go away. So there's no middle ground solution that says, ah, now we've learned from our mistakes and now we know exactly what the framework of protections ought to look like. And one of the reasons that that will never be fully satisfactory is partly, you know, it still involves human judgment and partly that the incentives uh, in our legal system make a certain set of plaintiffs unhappy with any protections for companies that have billions of dollars in the bank. You know, somebody stalked me on your service. uh, I don't know who that person is or that person's judgment proof. But what I really want to do is sue you for millions or, you know, or more. You know, for allowing him to use your service to come after me. And, and there are different versions of that argument. So apart from, you know, what the good public policy is, there's also the fact that there are pressures both from uh, plaintiff's lawyers and sometimes from uh, state or federal uh, government entities, including state attorneys general, you know, to say, "Well, I would really like to get a judgment against Google or Apple or Twitter that you know send some money to our coffers, and uh, you know help me make my bones as a politician in my state." Uh, there's a lot of in- you know weird incentives in that world. Plus, and this is worth mentioning, Section 230 was amended just last year. It was an amendment process that uh, even the people who wanted amendments think did it turn out didn't turn out well. Uh, because uh, Congress uh, in its uh, wisdom took every possible amendment, you know, every proposed amendment and essentially mashed them together so that they have inconsistent provisions and a lot of ambiguity and didn't really settle anything. But the only thing I'd add to that is that even the perfect version of any of those amendments wouldn't have settled uh, the debate about what role the platform should should face. I think in, in that case, we have to ask ourselves, You know, what is it that we value about Facebook and social media and search engines and what it, because of the things we value, we're willing to tolerate in order to get that value?
1: Yeah. So I totally agree that a lot of these arguments seem to kind of recur with each new iteration of, you know, information technology. It was always the case, you know, I, I am old enough that I have been through the bulletin boards and also the blog era and you know it was definitely the case in both of those you would have you know whoever was the administrator or the owner of the, the blog or the BBS, you know, they would kick people off or moderate their comments or whatever. And people would get upset about that. You know, I don't want you to reveal anything about yourself, but I, I personally have been, was banned from a number of different blogs for, you know, unjust reasons. Right. <laughs>
2: right. You know, no, no, I should, let me just jump in. I, I it happened to me too. I, I'm happy to say it didn't happen to me a, a lot. <laughs> yeah. It certainly happening time, from time to time. And and although occasionally I was uh, irritated or even, uh, at least on one or two occasions, angry for having been censored in that way, I didn't really think that, I, I didn't tr- jump to the conclusion that the BBS operator or, or you know, the blog space, uh, you know, provider or whatever had some obligation to carry me. That was not Right. An inference that I drew.
1: Me neither. And it was also, you know, while it was a little annoying, to the extent that there's a difference, I think that if some blog or BBS operator banned me, yeah, I just go, like, there's a thousand and one blogs. You just go to the next one. You know, it's like in the old, like in the 19th century or whatever. If they kick you out of one town, you go to the next town over. And now it seems to the extent that there is a difference, part of it seems to be in that. There are just there's a few central platforms that everybody or the vast majority of people use so that if you get kicked off of that, it's like being kicked out of the United States to to for the analogy.
2: That's right. And if you were in a if you were in a city and you were uh, if you lived in a city and you were uh, an irritating drunk in one pub and you got 86 from that pub, you could definitely go to the next pub. Right. I mean, it's not. You know, there are definitely choices. Uh, so that is absolutely one difference, uh, which is that the scale of, of the dominant social media platforms is so large that if you get kicked off, you know, that really does affect your ability to reach some audiences. Now, it may not matter to everyone. Not everybody has, you know, ten thousand or more followers, or, or whatever the threshold is for for being an influencer these days. But you had, you know, in the, you know, not too long ago, we typically had more choices. And even into the Facebook era, for example, there was this period where if you didn't like Facebook because, you know, it was too boring and you wanted to customize your page, you'd go to MySpace, have a great time there. And MySpace was certain to last forever because it had Rupert Murdoch's millions behind it. So, of course, it would never go under or fade. But it turns out that uh, for reasons, sometimes free markets actually kind of pick a winner. And, uh, you know, we've seen this on multiple occasions. And there are different reasons for this to happen, not all of which have to do with the winner being the best service. Microsoft Windows was for a long time and it's, uh, and certainly still arguably is, you know, a dominant desktop operating system. Uh, and it wasn't because Windows got everything right. It wasn't because Bill Gates got everything right. It was because there were all sorts of reasons for people to feel like they wanted to standardize around, you know, that standard. So Facebook, I think, uh, made some similar choices early in in its evolution, especially when it opened up to the general public that have to do with simplicity and attractiveness of the interface and the ease with which you could post, uh, you know, uh, pictures and later video and audio uh, and so Facebook's dominance, I think, came from having, you know, genuinely successfully competed, uh, at least at certain points in, in, in its existence. And, and so if someone want, you know, has a big audience on Facebook, and I have a pretty big audience on Facebook, I guess, but if you, if you have a big audience and you, then you did something that abruptly got you kicked off of Facebook for a terms of service violation or suspended even, you know, that's uh, distressing, and you really do feel cut off. Uh, so I'm so I st- very sympathetic with anyone who's had that happen, especially if there was no sign that it was coming. It's like an abrupt thing, and, and even that has happened from time to time. But one of the interesting things to me about the moment that we're in, the historical moment that we're in, is that the platforms are under more pressure now than ever before to intervene in content and intervene in user access. For, you know, there's pressure from other users, pressure from governments, pressure from courts. There's a bunch of different reasons that the companies may be more pushed to intervene as they can under Section 230 uh, in ways that make people feel censored. So, so uh, you know, one of the things we're grappling with is how do we keep the freedom of speech that we love so much and that we I think we enjoy on Facebook in the face of all this pressure on the companies to clean up the neighborhood or, uh, you know, do something else that we think would make them better. And I want to, by the way, add just here at this point that it's not just speech. Of course, there, there are issues about uh, manipulative content, you right. know, uh, fake news and handling of private information that I think are genuine issues. So we we don't want to skip over those. There are a bunch of things that the platforms maybe uh, need to grapple with. We can't assume that because we've asked them to respond and they and some of them want to respond and make us happy. I mean, that doesn't help them at all to piss us off. They would like to make us happy, but they get inconsistent demands and they also encounter the problem that every choice that they make to intervene is going to lead to some negative feedback without exception.
1: Yes. Let's let's talk a little bit about the privacy because that's another issue that you discuss in in the book. And I know there are, you know, this, as with the speech thing, there have been various proposals to try and deal with the, you know, the fact that Facebook in particular, but some of these, you know, Google, some of these other companies, you know, they get a lot of data from people and there's a variety of purposes that they could use that for some good, some bad. I know that in Europe, there was a, a recent internet privacy, online privacy law, I think the acronym is like GDRP, something like that.
2: GDPR, it's the General uh, Data Protection Regulation.
1: Okay, GDPR, which sort of sounds to me like the initials of the old East German uh, government. Uh, uh, which
2: we won't name because it'll just confuse people. People, The only initials you need to take away are GDPR in this discussion for General Data Protection Regulation. A lot of people think, by the way, that it's uh, general data privacy regulation, that the P stands for privacy. But that's not right. It's protection. And it, and, it, and that's partly because it covers even non-private, that is to say, public information about users that could be collected. Uh, so let me just talk about that a little bit. When the GDPR was first uh, passed, uh, when, when it was first uh, was passed and began to be implemented in the European Union, a lot of American tech company leaders were quite uh, skeptical. They just thought, you know, this is crazy. You know, we don't even know what data qualifies as protected or not, and this is a new law. And, and, and so the European regulators don't really know either. And they also believe, not wrongly, that to some extent there was some hope by the European regulators that they were gonna extract some penalties and behavior changes from American companies in particular. American companies are seen by European regulators as being, as they say, the, the Wild West. And you haven't lived until you've heard German speakers and French speakers tell you their version of what Wild West means. But so there, there's a concern about controlling private information. And by the way, I think that's fair. Uh, certainly, uh, international Internet and databases that last forever... Uh, And all this collection of private information based on our use of computers and networks, that is a new thing, and it's worth uh, thinking very hard about how how you want to deal with that. But on top of that, uh, there's the fact that regulators in many European countries know that the data is collected by advertisers and by the platforms themselves for commercial purposes. And the idea of collecting your personal information for commercial purposes is not you know it's not it's not particularly popular in the United States but it's even less popular in the European Union and some other countries around the world and so there's a there's a, some thought that uh, that's just so inherently suspect that we ought to just stick it to the companies that have collected our personal data so far and i think that's a really great discussion to have i think it's really appropriate to ask uh, these hard questions not just because of concern about commercial exploitation a concern that may be somewhat overblown, but also because once these companies have collected this information about you or me as users, governments of the world certainly can go to the companies and demand that information about how you use the Internet, you know, what stored email you've left on the Internet, what's the framework in which I can go back and get that, or they can look at everything you've ever said on social media. And then we start asking questions about what the scope of governments being able to look into our private lives ought to be. So those are real questions, and and I don't want to pass off any of those things, but I will say this. The concern about collecting personal information to make commerce happen, you know, for advertising is older than I am. I'm pretty old. I'm 62. But it's uh, it dates from, you know, in the United States, it dates from The Hidden Persuaders, a book by Vance Packard that was published right around the time I was born, that argued that advertising companies were figuring out how to manipulate us subliminally, You know, there's a lot of concern that we were being made to want things that we shouldn't want by advertising. So that concern actually predates the Internet. It predates social media.
1: In the uh, TV show, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, they talk about the hidden persuaders in there. Yeah,
2: that's right. And even uh, and also it's, of course, a big theme in uh, Mad Men.
1: Right. Yeah. Uh, you
2: know. You can imagine.
1: So one idea that you do touch on in the book that was interesting, I was I had not heard it before. The idea of making these social media companies into information fiduciaries, I believe is the term. That's right. Yeah. So can, can you just explain, you know, what that would mean uh, as an alternative idea?
2: Sure. So information fiduciaries is a. Is a mouthful. I, ha, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad I didn't come up with it because I can blame it uh, that term on the people who did come up with it, uh, who are scholars that I got great ideas from, including Jack Balkin, who also has uh, 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 at least partial ownership of that term, information fiduciaries. But let me unpack it a little bit for you by talking about other entities besides uh, uh, the tech companies. Josiah, you're a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. One of the things that we know is that e- is once you're a member of the bar, whether you're a solo practitioner or you're the you know lead partner at a big law firm, you have ethical obligations that are essentially the same as to your clients. You know, no matter how big or small you are. And what's more, you ha- have obligations even to non-clients. And this I thought was a really useful lesson to come out of training to be a lawyer, which is that if somebody comes to you and volunteers information about their case in the hope or their issue in the hope that you will counsel them or advise or even uh, take a case for them, even if you turn them down, you still have a confidentiality obligation as to that prospective client that you have no commercial relationship with. So it's a very powerful idea. And uh, I began, you know, when I was reading about the law professors talking about information fiduciary obligations that would be perhaps imposed or adopted by the tech companies what i you know when i mapped it back to my legal training i thought well well what about people who didn't actually volunteer and then of course the facts that uh, emerged which are that facebook has effectively profiles from people who are not members of the service that is uh, really interesting that they could know how to target ads to you even though you're not a member of the service, and presumably they could sell that information or do something else with it. Uh, that was really interesting to me because one of the things lawyers do, and also doctors, by the way, and accountants and priests, they all have you know, obligations and codes of ethics that say you have fiduciary obligations, and, and, and that typically that boils down to three obligations, Number one, confidentiality—you uh, don't share around the information that you get in the course of rendering your particular service to the end user or client or parishioner or you know whatever or patient. The second is duty of care—you have to be—you have to be, you have to be uh, reasonable in your care of the patient or client or whoever. You have to not do crazy things to them that w- would hurt them. And you have a duty of loyalty so that if somebody, even if somebody, you know, was your client and they left you for another firm, y- you normally, you know, that's a, in the lawyer context or that you're, you're a patient, and they, you left your doctor for another doctor. Your old doctor doesn't have, you know, any, It's not released from confidentiality obligations and your old lawyer isn't released from confidentiality obligations. And so I began to think that through and I realized that if the companies, the tech companies took on fiduciary obligations as to users, two or three positive things could happen. One is that it becomes harder for government or other interested entities to come get those users' private information from you as an information fiduciary so that You know, just because you're a third party, the third party doctrine ought not to apply, you know, which is a kind of abandonment idea that, you know, I left this stuff out so other people can turn it over to the police when they come. That's not a very uh, user protective rule. And the other thing uh, that I think was useful uh, is I remember from my constitutional law classes, as I'm sure sure, uh, you remember as well, Josiah, which is that in the the NAACP versus Alabama in 1958, uh, I guess 1958, 59, Freedom of Association case. The NAACP was uh, uh, commanded by state governments to turn over and publicize its membership lists in those states, and NAACP said, "No, we're not going to do that." And they advanced the argument, which won at the Supreme Court, that uh, their freedom to advocate for their users gave them the, you know, the standing to defend that that right. In the courts, and also it couldn't, it shouldn't be breached. It would be a First Amendment freedom of association, and even a freedom of speech violation for government to just command membership lists of advocacy groups. And 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 something similar applies to uh, you know things like law firm searches. You know, you don't want to have. You know, you typically don't want to allow, except in very special circumstances, a court order to turn over all your client information for your law firm. You know, to some magistrate or anyone else, that just se- that would just violate the ability to be a lawyer. You, you really wouldn't want to be a lawyer in that context. So, and and nobody would seek lawyers also because their information wouldn't be safe. So one of the things that occurred to me, and and here I was inspired a little bit by Apple. Apple, as you know, challenged the government's uh, demands that it crack iPhone security and that it make available to the government some ability to crack iPhone security if if the case were bad enough. And this was in the case of the San Bernardino uh, shooters and apple said you know before we you know comply with this we ought to we ought to challenge this and see what the scope of this authority really is if we're going to have this public policy debate about what your iphone security is, ought to be able to look like then we ought to have it fully in public and i thought that was a good decision and i like the idea of facebook or google or apple or twitter being able to have standing to go tell the government Stop. We're going to speak for our users here and say you are demanding too much or you need to follow a procedure before we turn stuff over to you. And one of the side benefits of that, I think, is that in a in an age or a year at least when we have a lot more public distrust of the big tech companies, what better way to begin to restore some of that trust than to put those companies in the position of being able to actively defend their users against uh, government demands for their information. So those, these were all of these ideas, kind of cooking up in my little legal crock pot uh, that I turned into, and I ultimately leveraged into this book.
1: One closing question: You are justly famous as the author of Godwin's Law, uh, which I think may be after that Andy Warhol quote about everyone about the fifteen minutes of fame. It's probably one of the. The most slightly misquoted lines on the internet. So I think a, maybe a baldardized version would be that when you're in an online discussion, the longer it goes on, the greater the odds that someone accuses someone else of being uh, Hitler or uh, Nazi, something like that. Is that would would that be a fair rendition?
2: Yeah, that's in the ballpark of what I yeah. said. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think so That's well, you know, I think that's a perfectly. Fine, paraphrase. And I'm now in the position of having read it in a bunch of different other languages. So I I get to see how it's, uh, you know, it's lost, you know, what's lost and sometimes what's gained in translation. Early on in uh, this online environment that we now all live in, I recognize the tendency for our rhetoric, you know, when we got mad at one another, to heighten and to, we looked for more and more extreme things to say about people who were um, disagreeably stupid or stupidly disagreeable. (laughs) And partly because I think the new online media were really liberating, people felt it was easier to give voice to their most extreme and and, and possibly unpopular opinions because they finally had the freedom to say what was on their minds and and have people read it. So I had, uh, in law school, I had been interested in the kind of the natural law Aspect of the Nuremberg trials, and I, I dug down really deeply into the war crimes trials question. One of the things, and my wife will probably call me Hitler for having, yeah. that. <laughs> um, but one of the things that we see is uh, is that people want to call each other Hitler or Nazis, and if you spend any time looking at that period of history. You realize you don't want people to forget the magnitude of what happened. And so I thought, well, how could I discourage people from just jumping to a Hitler comparison or a Nazi comparison? So I wrote Godwin's Law and I designed it so that it sounds like a natural law or even a mathematical law, although, it, of, course it, of course, it isn't either one of those.
1: I would describe it. I I think it is uh, perhaps not mathematical, but I would say it's more than just a cultural thing, if you want to be strict about it.
2: Oh, I I think that's right. Uh, You know, it it, it certainly is international. And if you look at Wikipedia, the German Wikipedia has uh, Godwin's uh, uh, rectic, I think, and then it's uh, en français, it's Roi de Godwin. Uh, you know, it's, it's everywhere. And they mostly, at least in the languages that I know something of, they mostly uh, get that stuff right. But the idea here was not so much to tell people that they couldn't make the comparisons, but to sort of suggest that they ought not to do so by following the path of least resistance to do it. They should ask themselves critically whether this particular set of historical comparisons has some justice to it. And I do think sometimes it does have some justice to it. And I, I think, you know, we've now seen in different places around the world, we've seen a resurgence of different kinds of militarism and nationalism and isolationism and, and, and racism Uh, and and other quite disturbing patterns that that certainly raise the question of of whether something like what we've seen before in history could come back. And I think that the answer is yes, of course it could come back. Human beings have not evolved to a higher state of being, you know, in less than a century. It absolutely could come back, and we need to be alert to that possibility. And Godwin's law is not meant to prevent all comparisons, but just the silly ones. Yeah,
1: and it, uh, I do try. I think it would be nice if people at least varied it up a little bit, you know. So maybe uh, instead of Hitler, you know, you could compare someone to Vlad the Impaler. Or the Emperor Diocletian, something like that.
2: Well, it would be nice if people, be nice be if more people just knew who the Emperor Diocletian <laughs> was. I mean, you know, I'm I'm happy to put make a, a Diocletian training mandatory in the public schools. All right, all right. I'm, I'm, I support that. My wife is Cambodian, and so one of the things that you know we talk about sometimes is. Uh, is Paul Pot. I was explaining to her early on what Godwin's law is and I said it's honey it's just like when people explain you know compare each other to Paul Pot and the Khmer Rouge.
0: And she said, "Oh, oh yeah, okay, I understand."
1: <laughs> that's probably yeah, that's the cultural translation right there.
0: I was just going to say if I'm if I'm not mistaken in addition to Godwin's law, I think I saw that you also are credited I don't know if it was with the first internet meme or describing what an internet meme is. Is that correct?
2: Well, so it is correct in the sense that Wikipedia now sometimes seems to say that. <laughs> um, so, and, and, and I used to work for Wikipedia, so I'm, I'm not necessarily well positioned to criticize what Wikipedia says. But so the idea of memes is, is, old, is pretty old. It's been around since the 1970s. Uh, and, the, and a meme is essentially a viral idea. Uh, it's meant to be uh, a parallel to a gene, and genes can be viral. When, gene, when when viruses happen, they're actually invading organisms and inserting new genes into the organisms that they invade. So memes uh, are just kind of the idea version of a virus. Uh, and then... Um, I uh, I had been reading about memes in society in the you know in various writings in the late 1980s, and as I got more and more online access, I be, I, I thought, well, here's a problem. Let's say that you uh, really are troubled by something that you're seeing online, but you're just one person. How do you possibly you know correct the record or challenge a bad idea? And and it occurred to me that if my challenge were viral, that if it were self-propagating, I wouldn't need to have a lot of money to be successful in the marketplace of ideas. It could just uh, propagate itself. And so I, I wrote, I invented Godwin's Law for the purpose of testing this theory. As it come up with something that sounds sufficiently ironic and quirky and, uh, you know, that people would just repeat it uh, and then I put my name on it because that's sort of my radioisotope tracking mechanism so that whenever I would see it pop up again on the Internet, years later, it, people would call it Godwin's Law or sometimes Goodwin's Law. I don't know who Goodwin <laughs> is, but, but, it, but I'm pretty sure they mean me. And uh, I, I was able to track it and say, aha, a successful recurrence of my uh, mimetic uh, virus. Uh, so uh, internet memes, I, you know, I'm always, I always appear in articles about internet memes now. So, so that's uh, something I'm going to probably be on my, uh, in my obituary. And as I've told some people, if I'm really successful in the rest of my career, I can push Godwin's law down into the second or third sentence of my
1: obituary when, when that happens. Well. Here's hoping. Thank you very much for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me. And uh, the book is The Splinters of Our Discontent, How to Fix Social Media and Democracy Without Breaking Them. And it's available at fine booksellers everywhere.